Hello and welcome to the Fuck a Diet podcast. I am your host, Caroline Dooner, and this is a podcast about diet culture. It's a really casual podcast too. Okay, all right, just warning you. Okay, all right, let's get started. You know how diet culture has hijacked exercise and made it all about losing weight and burning calories and manipulating our bodies? It's so annoying. It's so annoying. This summer I was looking for videos, um, little exercise videos when I felt trapped in my house and they all were talking about burning and it really pissed me off. Ideally, we wanna find exercise that makes us feel good without focusing on weight and weight loss and burning calories. So I wanna talk about Unmeasured, another sponsor of this episode. Unmeasured is a virtual monthly bar membership that trades the toxic diet culture BS for body celebration. For just $25 a month, you get 24-7 access to a virtual library of do-anywhere bar classes that are refreshed weekly, and there are curated playlists and form and modification tutorials. So if things are too difficult or hard on your body, there are other ways to make it less hard on your body, which is really nice. Unmeasured was created by bar instructor Simibotic, and it is free from shame and judgment, and you can honor your body and enjoy a fun, intuitive relationship with movement. You can go to unmeasured.simibotic.com or you can find the link in my show notes. Hello, how are you guys? I just got back from a trip to Stowe, Vermont. I was sharing a little bit on Instagram and I had we had to do this quarantine protocol beforehand. We could either quarantine for seven, uh, 14 days or seven days with a COVID test. So that's the one that we did. And I felt a little bit uh, I feel awkward being like, I'm in Stowe. We drove up from Pennsylvania because I know there are all of these um, rules that we followed and need to be following. Um, but I had so much fun. It was like driving. Uh, Stowe, Vermont is like seven and a half plus hours from Philadelphia. And it's really close to the Canadian border. Uh, and it's like past peak fall there so there are like lots of bare trees it was in the 40s and 50s fahrenheit and then we drove back down yesterday and now it's like 70 degrees again and like way earlier fall it's like we drove into fall it's like we drove into the future and then we drove back into the past i was with my cousin susan um we're both like 32 and 33 year old spinsters so we have a lot of flexibility i just had to get my dog watched um uh flexibility (laughs) follow strict pandemic government guidelines and we were off to to be in a we were up there for four nights it was really fun anyway i am back um while i was up there i bought not two not one not two not three but four uh animal print pieces in one day like an idiot and I'll probably wear them all together for Halloween and go nowhere. I bought like a little head, uh, a little ear warmer leopard print, a leopard print shirt, a leopard print skirt, and boots that when you turn over the, you know, the collar of the boot, you know how boots have collars, the collar of the boot, when you pop it over and you see the fur on the other side, it's leopard print. So... I am a fool in two years when it's completely uncool to wear leopard print or cheetah or whatever the hell it is. 
I will regret my choices. I mean, the only reason I did it is because they weren't too expensive. But yeah, I have a fully leopard print ensemble to wear. I'll take a picture and put it on Instagram at some point. All right, what are we really doing here today? Today, I'm sharing my conversation with Jenny Weiner. She is a therapist in Philadelphia. I promise I'm not purposely just talking to Philadelphia people. There's like a oddly big community of intuitive eating and health at every size and fat positive practitioners in Philadelphia. I'm not a practitioner. I'm just a girl. I'm just a an old girl sitting around talking into my $60 microphone. Today, my conversation with Jenny is about her recovery. So she is a therapist and she works with people on all sorts of things, but also on eating disorders and disordered eating. But we talk today about recovery and ethical veganism and if the two can work together. And spoiler alert, they can work together, but there are a lot of things that you need to ask yourself if that is you and if that is what you're trying to do. So we talk about that today. We also talk about Overeaters Anonymous, which is something that people ask me about all the time. Is the fuck a diet like Overeaters Anonymous? The answer is no. We talk about that. And, and we also talk about, you know, the inherent problems with Overeaters Anonymous And we also talk about how to approach talking to friends and family or just relating to friends and family if they are not on board with your healing journey with food and weight and health. So before I launch into my conversation with Jenny, I want to share another sponsor of this podcast. Now, as I've said before, I have started doing ads with aligned people, coaches, businesses, online programs that I truly genuinely believe will be helpful for everyone who is listening to this podcast who is interested in the fuck a diet, who wants to heal their relationship with food. I promise you I will never share someone who is going to do that diety version of intuitive eating or going to try and twist this into some sort of weight loss thing or anything that I think would be triggering. So this episode's next sponsor is Lou Urich and her program, The Mend Sessions. Lou is a certified eating psychology coach and body image mentor, and her online course, The Mend Sessions, is a self-paced 10-week course for the woman who is ready to find food freedom, befriend her body, and move on with her life. The Mend Sessions can serve as a powerful starting point or a comprehensive refresher for those who are already committed to anti-diet and weight-neutral living. The Men's Sessions is full of downloadable lessons and resources and worksheets on the topics of intuitive eating, body image, joyful movement, self-compassion, intuition, self-talk, binge and emotional eating, and more. As you can hear, it covers a lot, and it covers all of the aspects of this journey. And plus, you will get access to expert interviews and an optional community support and monthly Q&As with Lou. To learn more about the men's sessions and to hear from past participants, you can visit Lou's website at louyurich.com. That's L-U-U-H-R-I-C-H.com. And you can find all of those links in the show notes of this episode. And exclusively for you, a listener of the Fuck a Diet podcast, you can use the code FUCKIT, all one word, at checkout and you'll get $30 off your mend sessions enrollment. Go check it out and check out Lou Urich on Instagram as well. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here, Jenny. Thanks for having me. 
Will you tell everyone who's listening what you do for a living and how you got into the work that you do? Yeah, I am a therapist um, specializing in the treatment of disordered eating and body image concerns. And I am also an eating disorder survivor myself. Um, and I also happen to be an ethical vegan. Um, and I really came into this work as many of us do through my own experience recovering right. from disordered eating. Um, and it was really, you know, when I found health at every size and intuitive eating that it really became clear that I could like see myself, you know, really working in this field uh, oh, yes. because those, those frameworks just opened up my own recovery so strongly and um, it just suddenly all clicked and I felt like there was sort of a place for me here that I hadn't seen before. I know health at every size was such a big piece for me because before before health at every size, I was still twisting intuitive eating. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't. I was. I was able to ignore, or kind of <laughs> redefine the things I was reading about weight and accepting your body and getting out of the diet mentality as like, well, you know, for me, what that really, mean? you know, yeah. I was I, until I was forced to really face the the lies and the myths and the misinformation about weight and health and food and, and weight and health. Yes. I just, I just was willfully um, still being disordered. Yeah, you know? totally. And I went through, yeah, it sounds like similarly sort of earlier phases of what I thought were recovery and, um, you know, were really just disordered eating like uh, in different disguises and right. different phases. Did you, um, so you actually went into the field after recovering, right? Or yeah. were you already on the path to being a therapist before you recovered? Um, I think it's really both because I just don't think it's realistic to expect that living in diet culture that any of us can really fully or, or that we can say for sure that we will arrive at a place where we never have a negative thought about our bodies again, or never, you know, like never think about manipulating our bodies in some way, because it's just relentless. It's, it's all around us. And, you know, I think about this with like my clients all the time who come like one hour a week and so like bravely engage with this stuff, but have to go back out into the world that is just awful <laughs> cruel oh my gosh molly please here i'm gonna move rooms oh sure so she can so she's all alone barking by herself <laughs> um i totally totally agree and i feel like you know i feel like there can be huge leaps in a healthy happy direction and we can have so much better coping mechanisms and a kinder relationship with ourselves but I really do think that, you know, the thoughts will probably still happen and keep happening. Yeah. 
Um, and we will just get better at managing them and, and responding to them and kind of like navigating them. Totally. And I think that's where recovery actually happens. It's mm -hmm. like not that we never have the thought again. It's what we do with it um, right. and what we do next. And I think when I realized that that was like really game changing for me. Um, so, yeah, so I, I was definitely much further along in my recovery before um, coming into the field. I actually changed careers. I was living in New York, working in the art world. Um, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. And then switched gears um, once I sort of started finding my footing in recovery. Right. And that makes a lot of sense that once you have, and I did it and I did the same thing in my own way without actually yeah. becoming a therapist. <laughs> I was like, wow, this makes sense to me. I can start writing about this because totally. it was revolutionary to me. It really was. And, and I'm sure you felt the same way that you were like, yeah. wow, if only, you know, I had had someone to put all these pieces together. Yep. And lived experience is so valuable in this field. And you have, yeah, given everyone such a gift with your work. So. Oh, thank That's so nice. <laughs> thank you. So what we're really going to focus on talking about today is ethical veganism and health at every size and recovery and how you navigate that and maybe some of the, the pitfalls along the way. And I know that you have like talked and written about this before too, because I think it's a question that a lot of people come to, especially if they have been vegetarian at some point or are thinking about going vegan. You know, I have always loved animals. Like I grew up with pets and um, was just always really obsessed with animals. And when I was nine, I came home and told my parents I was going vegetarian um, just because I like really loved them and couldn't loved animals and couldn't imagine eating them anymore. Um, and I think my parents thought it would last like two weeks, like most things did. When right. right. Um, they were like, all right, this will be like ballet or karate and we don't have to worry about it. Um, <laughs> right. Right. But I never went back to eating meat and you know, over the years, my, um, my motivations for that became a little more um, sophisticated, I guess, you know, sort of learning about factory farming and the different sort of uh, ethical implications. But it was always really about the animals. Right. Just like, it just in my mind, like there was never any motivation for weight or even health was not a motivation, which can also, you know, right. really be like a sneaky way that diet culture kind of weaves its way into veganism. Yes. And my, when, you know, I was only vegan for about a year and a lot of that was raw vegan and mine was so much about this like miracle cure quest, you know? Yeah. So, and that was really clear for me to be able to see, okay, this is, this is inherently disordered for me, you know? Right. Very right. different from, from your, mine was not for the animals. Yeah. <laughs> mine was for me and it was yeah. disordered. You know what I mean? Totally. And I think that is a useful 
or it can be a useful question to ask when you're trying to sort of really assess whether you know your motivations are ethical or other like would i still you know pursue a vegan lifestyle if i was guaranteed to gain weight right you know right um which really sort of puts it in a different perspective i think yeah no that's a great question and if the answer is eh, i don't know then that might be a little red flag and you might want to yeah. hold off until right. the answer is yeah you know right and and it doesn't mean that the other ethical reasons might not be there and might not be real for you but it's probably worth exploring and sort of disentangling the diet culture values first a lot of people have a really really hard time even navigating the reasons that they're doing what they're doing you know yeah and right so for some people it really is helpful to sort of sort that stuff out first and for other people i think it really is possible to pursue these together um it just i think really comes down to being like open and honest with yourself and willing to explore these questions right right so i want to hear more about your own recovery if you feel comfortable talking about it well similar to how you know i'm saying health at every size really was kind of a turning point just for me like professionally and in what i wanted to do in the world um that really was a turning point in my recovery too you know i had been in a lot of treatment over the years, sort of all different levels of care, outpatient, mm -hmm. inpatient, and always relapsed because I always, you know, walked out and went back to the world of diet culture. And, um, and you know, like, because I was always, you know, I am in a smaller body, but I've always been in a quote unquote normal BMI. Mm -hmm. So, no one ever really explained to me that I had a restrictive eating disorder, <laughs> you know, right. like, same, absolutely yeah. same. Yeah. It's, and it seems so obvious and simple now looking back on it, but you know, my primary diagnosis was bulimia and it really um, was just always framed as yeah, a problem around binging and like not being able to manage my emotions effectively um right, which like right, was also right. true but i was primed for that because i was starving exactly exactly it's not that it's not that we don't need to you know examine and support the way we deal with our emotions and right. our thoughts it's not that that's not a part of it but it is often not the primary, primary cause. It is often right. just another piece of the puzzle. At least that's what my experience has been. Yeah. Yeah. And I definitely just see that time and again with folks. And it's not like the restriction isn't always obvious either. It can be, you know, such subtle restriction with food or it can be other types of restriction, as we know, right? Like the emotional restriction, mental restriction, mm -hmm. um, restriction of needs, of pleasure. Um, and if we're at all primed for like dieting or manipulating our bodies, that 
tends to be just the go-to way to to sort of compensate for that. Yes. So for anyone listening who's wondering about their own, say anyone out there is struggling with bulimia and assuming it's because they're, you know, a binge eater who's afraid of gaining weight, for you, you can now see, and this is a question, you can see that you had these restrictive either behaviors or a restrictive mentality that then led to the binging, that then led to the, the purging and that it was all part of this cycle that actually started with restriction, right? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. It started with dieting. Right. It started with, you know, like Weight Watchers when I was an adolescent. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's the thing that I just wish, you know, en masse, we understood, we understood <laughs> that yeah. the binging and the feeling out of control around food and even the binging and purging is almost always starting from restriction and not even just actual, just like you said, not even just actual restriction. Oh, by the way, if you hear my dog panting in my ear, (laughs) she was sitting, I let her into this room like an idiot. Now she's running around biting her feet. Um, But restriction, not just actual physical restriction, though often, you know, we're actually eating less than we need, even if we think that we're not, but that just living in a diet culture that makes you feel guilty about eating or choosing or craving certain things can start this cycle too. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, there's also, of course, a spectrum, right, that you, I know you've talked about of disordered eating and eating disorders and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, eating disorders are, a mental illness. Like there are, um, you know, they are sort of reinforced behaviorally, cognitively, physiologically. Um, So it's, it's not that we're saying it's as simple as just like eat more and this goes away. But if you trace it back far enough, like that's often sort of where that seed was planted. Right. It's, it's a huge, huge, yes. And I've heard someone say before, and it, you know, honestly, it was a couple years ago and it was on Instagram and it could have even been you, (laughs) (laughs) but I've heard someone say that eating disorders are a bio, social, a bio, social, bio, psychosocial. So there, there are so many different pieces. It's biological um, and genetic, you know, oftentimes, um, psychological and social, it's affected by our actual culture. And so we can't just address one piece of that. You have to understand that they're all affecting each other and affecting you. Totally. It was not me who said that, but I, <laughs> I co-sign it, but I don't want to, I won't take kind of it. <laughs> I don't know. I know that's, that's one of the problems about Instagram. Things just kind of lose attribution, even in our own minds. I'm I like, know. Someone really smart said that. And I just, <laughs> I just don't know who it was. Um, so another thing that you mentioned a long time ago when we were setting up um, we were start trying to set up this this very talk was that you um, you wanted to address overeaters anonymous and all the problems with it because my God the amount of people who have found me and I can imagine have found you or who have tried to address their their eating disorder or their disordered eating with overeaters anonymous and have got gotten 
gone even deeper into the hole of disordered eating. I mean, yeah. there are so many people I couldn't even begin to count. Can yeah. we talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I was in OA for a couple of years and that's when I alluded earlier to like some earlier phases of what I thought were recovery, but were really, um, were really not. And were just sort of different like shades of disorder. Um, that was, that was a big one. And, you know, I know that there are a lot of people that really find a lot of solace in those rooms and feel that it really helps them. And I certainly don't want to take away um, anything from someone that they think, you know, is helping them in their relationship to, to food and body. But I also don't want people to think that that's as good as it gets. Like this, um, you know, it's, it's just really such a deficits based program. Like I felt like I, you know, was trying to heal my relationship to food and, I would, I had to like record my food every day and turn it over to a sponsor who was a wonderful person, but not a registered dietitian. Right. And, you know, if I like took one bite sort of outside of this plan I had set out, I had to admit it. And, you know, it was like, oh, you're not being grateful enough. You're not being of enough service. You're, you know, this, you're living in fear of this. And, um, you know, for anyone who struggled with disordered eating, eating disorders, like most of us don't need any help, like figuring out what's our, what our deficits are. (laughs) Like, you know, we sort of live in that space. Um, and, I really just needed someone to say to me like, yeah, you're not eating enough and you're, you're planning to not eat enough. And that's why you always end up eating more. And that, I mean, I've actually, I've never been an overeaters anonymous though. There was a very big chunk of time when I considered it. I was like, I, but then I went into another diet and I was like, well, I don't need that. I'm going to, I'm going to deal with my overeating problem with another strict plan. I don't need to go to a meeting, you know? Um, so I don't, I don't, you know, I've never been there and I've never um, really studied what it is. But I mean, my understanding is that it is a demonizing of, of eating anything that isn't on your plan, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and there are different like types of, even within OA, there are a couple different tracks and some that are even more strict and, um, but yeah, right. It really frames food as the problem. And, and eating as the addiction, right? As opposed to understanding the dieting. For so many yeah. people with disordered eating is actually the, the addiction. I mean, you could look right. at it that way. And that the quote unquote overeating is a direct response to that, whether we realize it or not. Right. Yeah. And there's also just so much fat phobia in, you know, sort of baked into the, the program. And, um, right. I remember like, as I sort of got deeper into my orthorexia, as I was in that space, 
I got so much praise and like I was dropping weight and I started to get asked to speak at meetings because like I was this success story. Um, And I, looking back now, see how it was just a good like two years of restriction that we're just kind of building up to an epic relapse. Um, Right, right, right. And, and the, the successful, um, quote unquote, successful uh, restriction is really just you being stuck in, you know, a deep control, you know, control issue, really, which is so much, I mean, so many people who have been through this, I'm sure can identify that it's like this, this, you know, these disordered behaviors that we now know, you know, we understand now that they're disordered, but they're so praised by our society that we don't even have the understanding that it's, it's disordered. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, unlike other 12 step programs, you get to define your own abstinence in a way. So so interesting. You know, it's not as clear cut as, not drinking, not using substances. And so I very conveniently set mine at not binging and purging, um, which sort of left open um, all this room for restricting and obsessing about food. And so when I say like, I don't, I just don't want people to think that that's as good as it gets. That's sort of where I'm coming from that, you know, I thought I was being successful because I wasn't you know, breaking my abstinence, quote unquote, but I was living in just total obsession and fear and um, it was not, not freedom in any sense. Yeah. And to me, it's just, it's ignoring the understanding that those rules are part of the problem, you know? like from the actual organization's perspective, that is a big, big, big missing piece. And I, I've been asked many times, and it's usually people who are new and haven't really listened or read the book or, and it was actually a lot of people before, you know, it's, it's nice now that my book is out. It's like an easy access point for people. It's compiled. It's like, before it was like, I could read your entire website, your entire blog from 2012, or I could just ask you this question in your DMs. And a lot of the questions were, so wait, is this different than Overeaters Anonymous? And I was like, oh yes. <laughs> oh yes. This is not the same thing at all. It's, it's pretty, I mean, it's a very, in my perspective, it's a very opposite approach. Absolutely. Yeah. But you know, it it is, it's confusing because Overeaters Anonymous is way more socially acceptable and trusting your body and trusting your cravings and understanding the nuance of quote unquote overeating is really not socially acceptable or understood yet. Right. And as we know, community is such an important part of healing and that is one thing it offers. So I really get that too. And, you know, I'm still in touch with a couple of people, you know, that I've met sort of through that space and really like love and admire so many people that I met there. Um, But just when I look back on it now, I, I'm sort of shocked at like, you know, that I thought that that, was recovery. 
I know. Now, do those people know what you do now? <laughs> um, <laughs> or are they still in overeaters and Yeah, you know, I that I don't know. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I know it's hard because, you know, another question that I get all of the time is, "What do you do about friends who are, or friends or family members?" Which I think is can be even harder who are stuck in diet mentality and, you know, that's hard enough, but then the next layer of difficulty is if they're pushing it on you. Yeah. Um, and that is, I mean, that, I, I think that that's one of the hardest because yeah. yes, we live in a, we live in a really cruel fat phobic society and that is difficult, but when it's people that you love and people who ideally should and could be your support system, Mm-hmm. That's just so, so hard. This episode's final sponsor is Elizabeth Armstrong, a therapist who specializes in supporting people with PCOS. Now, if you don't have PCOS, this probably isn't geared towards you, but PCOS is a hormonal syndrome that a lot of women have. And in my experience and opinion, and in a lot of other people's experience and opinion in the anti-diet world, the way it's treated or the way that it's traditionally treated and managed has way too much of a focus on weight and weight loss. And what that can do is make our health worse in other ways and also lead to a bigger disconnect with our bodies. So Elizabeth Armstrong, she's a therapist and she's also a coach who specializes in supporting people with PCOS who want to move away from diet culture and make peace with their body. She has 15 years of lived experience with PCOS herself, and she understands how deeply PCOS affects not just your physical health, but your mental health as well. Elizabeth offers one-on-one online therapy and coaching, as well as small, intimate support groups. You can find her over on Instagram at PCOSTherapist or PCOSTherapy.com, and of course, find all of the links in the show notes to this episode. I always sort of encourage people to think about it as if it was, you know, you were talking to someone of a radically different political orientation, which mm-hmm. like you kind of are, right. Um, right? you know, when we talk about health at every size and we're really talking about body liberation and fat liberation and racism and, you know, all of these things. And so, you know, like we all have maybe that relative of a very different political leaning who we know it's just not worth the time and energy that we're going to expend talking about it. Right. Versus, you know, someone else in our lives, a close friend or someone who we know we can have a civil conversation about it. And we know that we can like protect ourselves and resource ourselves emotionally to, withstand that. Um, And so I sort of encourage people to use that same instinct um, in deciding like how to respond. And, you know, sometimes we get it wrong and (laughs) then we have to recover. But I know it's, uh, I think that that's such great advice. And especially with family, I think that that works really well. With friends, I mean, over time, slowly but surely, I have kind of naturally found myself gravitating to deeper friendships with people who 
generally understand, who yeah. understand the faca diet. And if they don't fully 100% understand, they understand and respect it enough that it's there's a mutual understanding and there isn't a focus on diet or weight loss in the actual friendship. Yeah. And that kind of happened organically over time just because of what I personally valued and prioritized in like what a supportive friendship is and looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Um, there are very, very few people close to me in my life at this point who are on like really different pages there. Cause there, there comes a point where I think it just feels unsafe. Yeah. Uh, and you know, again, as someone in a smaller body, like I have so much privilege in terms of, you know, my safety in the world based on my size. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I already have a lot more safety to begin with, but, uh, yeah, just within my like close personal relationships, it's just really hard to reconcile. Um, if someone's on a totally different page there, Right. I know. I, yeah, that's very, very true. Um, and, and then the, the, the funny thing when I really think about it and I get asked this a lot, you know, I get, I get asked a version of like, how do you deal with people? And like, how do you find friends that like understand? And through, you know, the past eight years, eight plus years that I've been doing this myself and, and writing about it. And I don't preach the way people assume that I do because mm -hmm. I write about it online. I think people assume that I'm like talking about it all of the time with friends and I'm really not. Right. Um, I don't find that that, I don't find that to be very effective. <laughs> like if I'm trying to convert someone who isn't really looking for it or who isn't really there ready yeah. to, you know, if they have their own struggles, but, but I also can't think of any time that I've been like, Ugh, I need to stop being friends with this person because they're, you know, they're ruining my peace. It's been much more kind of like subconscious and intuitive yeah. and subtle. Like I, I, I don't recall ever like making any big, like unfriending people in real life and like right. seeking to make friends. Like it just sort of in honoring my own healing and happiness and needs. And also, you know, prioritizing having friendships that just like you said feel safe that's just sort of happened th thankfully you know yeah, I, like intuitive relating right yes exactly exactly apply like you didn't just go on a friend diet and like you know cut out everyone that exactly 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 um, you just sort of started exploring and found your way to yeah to the ones that nourished you and fulfilled you and satisfied you which right is everything that we're working towards with with food and our yes, bodies yes that's such a good parallel that's such a good parallel um so okay so to anybody let's bring it back to your ethical veganism because i know there are so many people out there who are wondering whether they can do it whether it's safe for them to do it um, whether it's going to bring them into a relapse, what would you say to those people who are, 
who are kind of grappling with that? I would really encourage you to sort of trace, you know, both the origins of your disordered eating and your veganism, um, sort of look for overlaps or how, just like how that timing, uh, sort of like how you asked me, you know, just sort of assessing the timing. Um, and then from there, sort of asking these questions of, you know, okay, would I still engage with this if, um, if it didn't have any effect on, you know, my health, or if I wasn't going to lose weight or control my weight through it, you know, would this still be meaningful enough to me? Um, another way to look at that is what other things am I doing unrelated to food that sort of maintain, uh, ethic, you know, vegan ethics, because it's not just about food. And if you're only focusing there and don't really care about any of the other stuff, like that's a good sign that, yeah, this might, might be about more about kind of food and excuse me, more about like body stuff for you. Um, so I think as with anything in recovery and in this space, just asking more questions and really just being open to whatever comes up and to know that like veganism will always be there and the movement needs you strong if you want to be part of it. Um, Strong, you know, emotionally and mentally and that, you know, it's okay to prioritize your mental health and well-being and to come back to this when you really feel ready. Um, you know, there is so much fat phobia in vegan spaces as well. So, you know, you really have to be grounded in a place to, you know, combat that. And, you know, as you were saying that, as you were giving the advice of, you know, how to really assess the reasons that we we're doing the things that we're doing, mm-hmm. which is often, I often say, we just have to be willing to ask ourselves why we do the things that we do. Yeah. Um, but it really, there's a big parallel to exercise, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most people, you know, I would say that more, you know, most people are, more people are wondering about their relationship to exercise than probably their a relationship with veganism, but it's very similar to me in that it could definitely be a supportive thing that you're really doing for your well-being or for the well-being of the planet in the case of veganism, but it may be too early and you may be using it as a way to micromanage your body or to micromanage your anxiety and to be willing to ask those questions about both veganism or any sort of way of eating and exercise all along, all through your life, really, because you could Mm -hmm. go through phases of kind of having, you know, disordered practices or thoughts creep in. um, And we still need to be able to kind of reassess as we go, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, No, I think that's a really good point that just because something does or does not work for you at this moment in time doesn't mean it'll always be that way. And so just being willing to continually come back and ask those questions is really valuable. 
Yes, that's great advice. It's so good. So Jenny, where can everyone find you online and how can they work with you if, if they're in the right state? Yeah, um, I am online. My website is homebodytherapy.com and I'm also on Instagram as homebodytherapy. Until I'm embarrassed to say pretty recently, I was like homebody therapy. It's about like, it's like body therapy. Like I, I, for whatever reason, yeah. I didn't put together that homebody right. was the word. Yeah. Right. I mean, or no. Yeah. I, well, it sort of can be a number of things, right? Cause it's homebody. Like, you know, a lot of the people I work with tend to be highly sensitive people or introverts. And so, and I definitely identify as a homebody, um, but also this idea of coming home to your body. Yes. So, well, that, I think that's what I first yeah. saw when I read it. And I was like, ah, oh, the body is our home. Right. And then just recently I was like, oh, homebody therapy. Like I'm a homebody too. Right. It's yeah. Good. It's a really good Works name. Both ways. <laughs> it's a great name. Thanks. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's so good to talk to you. So for the millionth time, you can find all of the links to all of the important people that I talk to and who sponsor this podcast in the show notes of this episode. And I want to share before I end this episode, I want to share just a little snippet of the conversation that I had with Edie Stark, who's another therapist who I've had on this podcast actually pretty recently. Um, but we had a conversation on Instagram Live about the Vow documentary, which is about that cult, Nexium, that has so many creepy diet culture components to it. And we also talked about All In by Teddy Mellencamp, which is this quote-unquote accountability program that's really just uh, an eating disorder that you pay a lot of money for and you pay for someone to yell at you and tell you to weigh in every day. Um, Teddy Mellencamp is on The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I am obsessed with Bravo TV. So this was something we wanted to talk about. And we did this Instagram Live and then I saved it as a, an IGTV on Instagram. So if you want to watch that, we talk, we start off by talking about All In by Teddy Mellencamp and then we talk about the Vow documentary that I find fascinating, absolutely fascinating. I just watched the seventh episode last night. Um, I, I highly recommend watching it if you haven't and just see the diet culture overlaps. And the other thing that we talk about in this conversation on Instagram TV, I guess it's called IGTV on Instagram, is the overlapping mentality, that extremist mentality that is both cult mentality and diet mentality and how very, very, very similar they are and how often they overlap. Um, so I'm going to share with you just a little Q&A. It's like just a couple minutes of me uh, of both of us answering a question about how not to turn intuitive eating into another extremist thing. But if you want to listen to the whole conversation, I've linked also linked to it in the show notes. And um, if you're interested in cult mentality or Nexium, or you're watching The Vow or you watch Real Housewives of Beverly Hills and have been watching all the Teddy Mellencamp stuff go down, um, that is something that you can watch. It's long. 
So it's like an hour plus. Uh, but I'm going to share with you just a little tidbit right now. Here's a good question. How do I make sure I'm not using intuitive eating as the same cult like mm -hmm. thing? Mm -hmm. I will start off by saying that you really truly can turn anything into yes. cult mentality. Mm -hmm. If you, don't allow any nuance or doubt, or if you start believing that you know something about everyone, or this is gonna totally change my life and I'm never gonna need, I'm never gonna be unhappy ever again, mm -hmm. um, anything. And, mm -hmm. and you can probably look through your life and be like, oh, that was a little extreme. And I, you can look at it as like extremist mentality. Mm -hmm. Where are you making things like this all or nothing black and white thing? I've done it a million times in my life even since going on the fuck a diet with other things with like other like even like life aspirational things but once i get this i'm gonna like okay. everything is gonna be perfect and i'm gonna be per like this is my way to like control everything and be mm -hmm. happy mm -hmm. if, I, if everyone just did this they'd be happy too you know yep. yeah because it's like it's seeking that like um i don't even know what the right word is like connection and uh, like freedom from pain and suffering, which is, you know, a goal most people have. No one wants mm -hmm. to be in pain and suffering. And yet mm -hmm. that is part of being human and it sucks. Like, it's like, that's another both and. It's like, no one wants to be miserable and sad all the time. And yet that's also a normal human response. And what we want to do is make sure that we are paying attention to the waves, right? And if we're noticing that we're getting a lot of just crashing waves of miserableness. We can, there are things we can do to help change and help cope better. What's not going to fix that is putting extreme restrictions on yourself in any sense of that word or believing black and white that if I do intuitive eating, everything will get better. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of things will improve if you do it appropriately and correctly, but there's also this caveat that intuitive eating has been co-opted by diet culture now. And so there's people who are like selling their intuitive eating course that are perpetuating for weight loss. Mm -hmm. And they're mm -hmm. like, it's very like enmeshed and commingled and it's tough. And like, if you look, even look at the hashtag on Instagram, intuitive eating, most of them are not actually intuitive eating based. Mm -hmm. They're like using the lingo, the language and this mindset to sell a diet or weight loss. And a it. lot of it's the hungerfulness diet of like, yes. you just listen really, 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 really well. Yes. Or it's like, you're never going to want a cookie again. Like I used to like eat cookies all the time and now I never, I never want them. And that's not the point of intuitive eating. Right, right. And again, if you want to watch that whole video, you can find the link in my show notes and watch the whole IGTV with Edie Stark. And I think that's it. I think I'll talk to you in two weeks. I have, <laughs> I, I have nothing else to say. And that's that and uh, vote, please vote, just vote. And I'll talk to you in two weeks, bye.